we, we actually never came up with the title for the show again. Dirty Laundry. Oh, Dirty Laundry. Was this a follow-up because of movies last week and Dirty Dancing? Or No, I think it's more to do that there's a good song called Dirty Laundry, and we talked about hotels, and that's what Sheldon does for a living is, is laundry. Who's airing his dirty laundry, so I think we'll go with that. I like it. All right. You ready? Hey there, Squash fans, and thanks for coming back to another episode of The Breakdown with myself, Connor O'Malley, and my co-hosts, Bill Buckingham and PJ Paul Johnson. This episode is one that we are all really excited to talk about. If you're a fan of squash, or any sport really, you know that beyond the athletes, there's another group of people actively involved to help keep the sport moving along. Sometimes they get thrown in front and center. Well, today we're taking a peek behind the curtain of what goes on behind the scenes in the world of officiating in squash. Sheldon Anderson shares his wealth of knowledge in this area. He's a squash player himself, but he has shaped the landscape of officiating in the United States at the grassroots, national, and professional level. In our R&R segment, we take some time to air our dirty laundry. It'll make more sense if you start listening. After the show, stay tuned, or just skip ahead to the end for the appendix to hear some hidden gems. A quick thank you to our sponsor, Pro Sport LED, your trusted lighting source for racket sports facilities like squash, tennis, pickleball, or padel because of its advanced LED lighting technology. These lights are a perfect solution for anyone building a new facility, but they can easily be retrofitted into existing courts. If you're looking for lights or know anyone that is, please go ahead and connect us at squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed the show. What about this? This call is being recorded. Way to be prepared, Connor, by the way. Okay, typically, you're the one that does the guest introduction. All right, all right, all right. Let's, not spout, let's, not, let's not spat in front of people. Not in front of the guests. Not in front of the guests. Especially when you're right, Connor. Exactly. We don't need to call a referee in to, to adjudicate our, <laughs> our issues. This is like on. noises off. Now I'm seeing what's going on behind the scenes. I can't wait to see how this actually ends up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Exactly. All right, Connor, we're ready. <clears throat> all right. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to another episode of The Breakdown with my co-hosts Bill Buckingham and Paul Johnson. Welcome to the show, guys. Good afternoon, chaps. Great to be here, Connor. Uh, episode 18. Um, it, is it? Because I know we keep getting this kind of wrong. So Does anybody really care what episode doesn't matter. it is? Yeah, you know, we should stop that, actually, because nobody, <laughs> like, like, we don't even care. Never mind our three listeners. I, actually, I thought it was a good bit, like, I, right? I think it's good if we get up there, like, way up there. I think it was good when we were, like, two and then 10 and now yeah. we're at 17 so like especially you know the man who we can't name uh who has like 300 episodes are you giving a demarcation of when we can bring it back 20 how 20? about every okay. every 10 we'll do it all right i'm cool pj you good with that um i'm good with that that's P pj has a microphone how about that pj's not speaking into like a like a cardboard box like he has like the last the first 16 episodes compliments to my uh, main sponsor mr o'malley Oh, yeah. He he bought your microphone. I don't know whether he bought it, but it was shipped from him. To it me. just arrived. Yeah, just our sponsors are you know taking care of us, Bill. Yeah. I had to buy my own microphone. I, yeah, well, did I offer? Levels, What's that? Bill. Different levels. Did I, I offer, Bill? I guess. I guess. I guess. <laughs> I think there was a, there was almost like an insulting. No, I will not have you get me this microphone. All right, Connor. What um, do we got today? So yeah, we've got a great guest on the show today, and 
the reason why we thought of this is in every episode, there's always an aspect of refereeing that comes up, whether it's between you and you and me, Bill, that we need someone adjudicating our interactions. But within the sport of squash, there's often times that refereeing comes up. So we've brought on an expert in the field, Sheldon Anderson, who is the chair of the Rules and Referee Committee for United States Squash Association. Sheldon, welcome to the show. Good day. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So it's pretty clear what the main breakdown is going to be today. We're going to dive into the world of refereeing or officiating. But we were thinking um, this man who in his day job where he is, he's involved in the hotel industry. So for our ratings and rankings section, we thought it might be interesting to go around the room and share our favorite hotel stories that we've had. It's it's also nice to know, like, so people look at these referees as like loathable characters, like everybody hates them and they're just, you know, get, get castigated everywhere they go. They're actually people who have jobs and families and things like that. So I just want that out there that, uh, you know, Sheldon's a human being. He's not just uh, like a punching bag for you pundits on the Internet to bash because you think he made a bad call and it cost your man a, a point or a match. So just know that out there. <laughs> So Sheldon, why don't you give a quick context of what your role is within the uh, the industry? Hotel. In the industry, I, I, I travel a lot. I have a consulting business. Um, I've, I've been doing hotels and managing hotels for several years, kind of transitioned into servicing and supporting them. So I actually do a lot of the, uh, and now I run all the laundries for ho- both hospitals and hotels. So in my day job, I actually air everybody's dirty laundry. Ah. So <laughs> I... Uh, I, I travel um, extensively to, to do that, and uh, now I have my own business, and I've been able to see, I see the ugliest places of the most beautiful places in the world. So, you know, I, I, it's just like officiating, really. I always end up going through the back door to get in. <laughs> <laughs> How long have you been in that industry, uh, Sheldon? Uh, you know, m- pretty much my whole life. Uh, my background and my education are, are all in um, hotels and management and leadership roles. So I've been doing it for close to close to 35 years. Wow. So that kind of dates myself, I guess. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's awesome. 35 years in the, in the hospitality industry is not an easy thing. Did you ever work in operations and actually work at a property or were you always like on the like outside consulting management, uh, the laundry business, or did you ever, were you ever actually like a front desk clerk or anything such as that? Yeah, no, no. I started my career as, you know, I, I worked in everything from fast food to luxury hotels. I spent several years working with uh, Fairmont Hotels, Four Seasons Hotels, Ritz-Carlton. I've done everything from, you know, being a pool boy. Uh, when they wow. saw my figure, they, they thought maybe <laughs> there might be another opportunity for you in the back, maybe washing dishes or uh, being in the laundry. Valet uh, parking, I've, I've ran rooms division, uh, housekeeping. So I've, I've pretty much served every single role and, you know, ended up in the glamorous area of the back basement of the house. Well, to, to comment, you are looking svelte, by the way. I haven't seen you in person in quite some time, so you are looking pretty svelte. So I think you're well past the fast food and more pool boy mode right now, to be honest with you. I, I'm getting there, you know. I, I'm, you know, right now my clothes don't look as much as putting, you know, 20 pounds of potatoes in a five-pound bag. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So go ahead, Connor. So let, you want to go around the room? and I only have one one story, so I, and I'm going to save mine for last because um, I'll let the, the, the stars of the show take over. And, and, Bill, why don't you kick us off so then we can calibrate our stories off of yours? 
All right. So unfortunately, my favorite hotel story, and I, I you know, although I don't have the, the, the resume that Sheldon does in the hotel industry, I was in the hotel industry. I think I counted up just for this podcast. I think it was for 13 years I worked in the hotel industry. Uh, every Anything from front desk clerk to night auditor to uh, food and beverage manager, all the way up to general manager, which I, and, and Sheldon knows that industry. And I don't want to castigate anyone in the hotel industry who may be listening to this, but rising in the hotel industry is not hard. And I'm proof of that. The fact that I became the general manager of a hotel just shows that like the, the bar is low. You basically show up. If you could show up, you're going to, you're going to rise in the hotel industry. Um, consistently so, and on time though, right? Consistently like, and, and, and on time. Yes. Yes. You don't actually, yeah, exactly the case. So I was the general manager of a, what they call a limited service hotel. It was an express hotel. It was a holiday and express actually, uh, when that brand first came out. So limited hotel means basically no services. And for the most part, it meant like we took a motel six and we changed the linen on it and we call it a holiday Inn now. And then if they changed the curtains and the uh, c- carpet, they call it a Marriott. So it's just things like that. So it wasn't, it was not a beautiful hotel by any means, but we were right along the highway. So we get some interesting guests that would come in. Um, and at this one point, a gentleman came in and I can't say his name cause he's still alive. And where was this though, Will? In New Haven, Connecticut. Okay. So this gentleman's still alive. He was the part of a, at the time, the number one rated radio show in the country. He wasn't the star of it, but he was, uh, and the show was <laughs> morning. So he was a big part of the morning show. So, so, so <laughs> any, he's still, any more clues, Bill? I, yeah, I cannot say names. <laughs> I, can, I can't say, but he worked on the show from, yeah, he, 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 yeah. So he was a big part of the show. I won't say what he did. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's, uh, this could get him in trouble. So, um, so he comes in and he checks in and his voice is so well known. And, and by that time, Amis morning was being uh, simulcast. They started doing simulcasting like in the morning. So you could, for some stupid reason, people who want to watch people do radio shows and, and talk into a microphone. He was, so I knew who he was the minute he walked in and I happened to be in my office, which was behind the front desk. And he checks in and says, hey, I'm looking for a room this afternoon, blah, blah, blah. And I heard the voice and I came out and I said, Hey, I said his name. Hey, big fan. I listen to your show all the time. Da, 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 da. And I was really excited because we, you know, it was a dumpy little hotel. Rarely did we get any guests of note there. And so put them up, upgraded them to our finest, our finest room, the whole deal. And it's like two o'clock in the afternoon. I said, what are you doing in the area? He said, oh, I'm doing some, um, some promo for the radio station up in, up at Foxwoods, which was the, the casino. That struck me as a little funny because Foxwoods was a good hour and 15 minutes away. And there's a ton of hotels up that way. So why he would stay at our hotel, no idea. But either way, went into his room. I immediately hopped in my car. Went to the local brewery down the street. There was one brewery in New Haven at the time and got him some local beer called Pepe's Pizza, which was a famous pizzeria in New Haven, ordered him a pizza and got it all, drove it and like, you know, just left it out in front of his room, pinged his room with a message saying, hey, you left you some New Haven stuff, hoping he would mention the hotel and me on the radio show the next day is really the reason I did it. It was purely self-serving. So the day goes by, the ho- you know, a, a hotel day goes by, a lot of sh- shit happens and I'm pulled in 19 different directions. So I kind of forgot about him that night. My night housekeeping executive <laughs> comes in and says, you need to come to room 12 or whatever room it was. I forget. We go in there and he had checked out and the room was an epic disaster. Mattresses were turned over. Pictures were off the wall. Mirrors were off the wall. The bathroom was a complete, like it looked like a hurricane had hit it. And she, the housekeeper executive said, yeah, one of my girls saw him leave. And he left with blah, blah, blah. And he said the name who I forget her name was, who was kind of the local hooker. And he had like, I don't know how he knew her. 
but he had basically spent the day afternoon in the hotel just trashing our hotel room and like with the local lady of the evening or of the day as it might were and just completely i mean destroyed the room we had to put the room offline for like two weeks and get it fixed and i didn't know what to do i was like i don't want to call him again because i know he's married he always talked about like you know his family and how important his marriage was and all that you know so it was a, it was a good life lesson too so um that was an eye-opening story i it was and he didn't even thank you for the beers is that what i'm hearing never never mentioned any of it never and obviously never mentioned on the show that i was driving up falsely to foxwoods and instead cheated on my wife with a hooker and destroyed a hotel room never mentioned that on the show the next day even though i listened intently for the whole show to see if he would mention that he did not so that was my like eye-opening hotel story the, the other ones were two famous people faye dunaway stayed at a hotel i worked with at once a famous old actress from bonnie and clyde and she made us rearrange her entire room so she had like the mirrors in the room were all so she at any point she had to be in a mirror like anywhere in the room she had to see herself yeah similar when i share on tour with joey barrington it's a similar kind of setup so i can <laughs> i can appreciate that bill yeah. exactly the case instructed uh the the staff was instructed literally not to make eye contact with her and only one person could come up to her room and deliver and it had to be the same person so they had this person had to be on call all the time that she was there and deliver her ice cream at a certain time of night regardless so she, that was the first time i had ever experienced any kind of like diva type actress who like demand you always hear about like i can only have green m&ms in my waiting room and that kind of thing so i experienced that um the the last one i'll do was more personal and this was just a few years ago i was walking back to my hotel i was at a wedding in philadelphia and back in my hotel and walked into my elevator and in my elevator behind me um stepped Shaquille O'Neal and Shaquille O'Neal as you may well imagine is bigger like we look at Sheldon in Sheldon's heyday Shaquille O'Neal is like twice the size of Sheldon so you, if you could only imagine how big Shaquille O'Neal is and so I looked at Shaquille I was like hey hey and I'm, I'm I mean I am blind drunk at this point um and he was there for some kind of convention because he's a cop are you sure like, Shaquille O'Neal <laughs> you know, it, it could have it could have been Muggsy Bogues I suppose but I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Shaquille O'Neal and so I obviously I, the, the elevator stopped and somebody else got on and he looked and saw like, me and Shaquille O'Neal standing, which I, I, he probably has a better story than this. So I had him take a photo, which I, I do have, and you kind of, you could post it on the website. But the weird part about it was that, so I got off the elevator and I was like, weirdly, hey, good night, Shaq. <laughs> like, good night, he says. And I started walking in my room and Shaquille O'Neal started following to my room. And now I'm drunk and a little paranoid. And Shaquille O'Neal is literally, and this is a big hotel. So he's like winding down the corridors with me, like turns and he's still following me. And finally I stopped and turned around. He goes, he goes, he looks at me, he goes, don't worry, I'm not following you. <laughs> <laughs> and his room was, his turned out his room was literally right next door to mine. So I put my key in, he put my key in. And, and, and so I looked and I said, good night, Shaq, and walked into the bedroom. <laughs> I like it. Well, well, Sheldon, let's hear what your dirty laundry uh, looks like. Oh, you know, I'll, I'll try and, you know, catch, catch up with Bill. But uh, I got a couple of good stories. The um, one is I, I do a lot of work on cruise ships, which are like really large floating hotels. And the best story that, that comes off those is in the laundry, it's in the basement of, of, of the ship. So as you're at sea, you're running, you can feel the vibrations of the engines. And at, at one point, everything stops and goes completely silent. And when you're below sea level or like under the water level, that kind of freaks you out. And the, and the captain comes on and says, um, ladies and gentlemen, we've, we've come across a ship with refugees on it that's stranded at sea. And we have to kind of wait for the Coast Guard and uh, to see what we're, we're going to do. So we're going to wait here to, to wait for their direction. So everyone's back doing what they're doing. And a few minutes later, the captain comes on and says, 
ladies and gentlemen, please don't throw food and water to the refugees. So I thought, now I got to see this. So I'm on a big ship. It's probably, it's 20 decks high. So I went to the top deck and, and you look down and there's like this ship that's, a, you know, a strand, like a beat up old boat. And people were throwing like whole pineapples <laughs> and like bottles of water. So imagine you haven't eaten in like 20 or, you know, t- three weeks. And it's starting to rain bottles of water and pineapples and, and uh, you know, watermelons. The whole water is all limited, you know, littered with all this, this food and drink. So, you know, it, it's good when people, you know, you know are, are charitable and throwing things down, but try not to do it from 30 floors high. <laughs> Sal- sorry, Sally sorry. Struthers would be proud. Yeah. So, yeah. so the, the refugee ship ended up sinking, I guess. Well, you, you know, it, it's funny. They actually, no one came out to get them. So we had to bring them on board. And uh, then they had to secure them and they're all in those areas and and they're all locked up. But when I was doing my work, I actually got off mid cruise. So I was getting off in, in, I think it was Cancun. And normally you just get off and you go and clear customs. Like there's only like five or 10 people getting off a ship for some reason. And when I walked into the room to clear customs, I walked off with all of them and everyone has like, there's military guards. Everyone's got guns. I'm walking in and they said, you know, there's a departure fee of like eight, $8 and everyone's got their guns on their table. And I said, I, I, I only got a 20. <laughs> they go, well, we don't have change. It's like, you, you can keep it, you know, keep the change. <laughs> don't yeah. throw food at the refugees. I, I like it. That's a, that sounds yeah. like a bumper sticker. The, you know, along Bill's story, the other one I'll add is, you know, in a, a luxury hotel that, that I was working at, they, uh, we had one of the stars that was filming a movie that was coming in and still alive, so I won't name him. But uh, I get a call late in the evening that I, he needs somebody to come to his room for some assistance. And so I get up to his room and uh, he was married at the time and has a, uh, a young companion in his room. Same sex companion? No, diff- uh, all, uh, all, different sex. Sorry. Okay. Um, Over 18 though, right? Uh, under the advice of counsel, I, I didn't ask for her ID. Okay. And, okay. and so she was in the room, but was in the bathroom and the doorknob fell off and she's trapped inside the bathroom that's locked. And so he's asking for the tools that we can get to try and get inside the, the, the bathroom. And I said, well, you know, I've got an engineer with me. We, we've got to come in and actually remove the door. And he goes, well, there's, there's somebody in there. And I'm like, we we're we're aware of that you know we'll we'll, we'll be discreet and, he, and then he's he's telling her in the back go behind the shower curtain like you know you know because it could be dangerous we're just removing the door so we removed the door and uh, in the bathroom was a lady behind the shower curtain that we never really got to see but we executed our duties and you know what was the took... name of the movie that person's most famous for i <laughs> uh, there's some great historical ones but you know i know that this broadcast is broadcast worldwide and i promised on the uh on the on my oath of secrecy you know not not to divulge it okay All right. i like it. That. i like it uh <clears throat> i've got a couple of stories actually uh, obviously being on tour for 12 years we were privy to some of the best and the worst hotels in the world uh during our travels the first one takes me back to paraguay in 1991 it was my second year on the psa world tour and the, the summer tours were kind of a big opportunity for these young up-and-coming or the starters to to get a few tournaments under their belt in a, in a fairly confined time frame so we were playing eight tournaments in 10 weeks 
And it was a flight down to, we flew from London down to, we started off in, in Florida, in Boca Raton, we had some events and then headed down to South America. We just finished up one event in Curitiba, sorry, sorry, in Santiago in Chile, where we stayed at the Crown Plaza. Beautiful hotel, glass elevators. Each room was littered with a, a bottle of red and a bottle of white for all the players. Fantastic event. Did quite well in that tournament. And then the next tournament after that was Paraguay. So this, again, being my only second uh, tour on the uh, on the PSA, I was expecting a similar quality of, of tournaments, you know, throughout the entire trip. So we flew down to Asuncion in, in Paraguay and we get picked up. Uh, the, the entire draw, basically, with the exception of a couple of locals, flew down from because all, all kind of 30 players would circulate around those eight events. So about 30 of us, I think it was, turned up at the airport in Paraguay. We get picked up by the tournament organiser. He puts us onto this school bus and he says, OK, guys, uh, because the city is so busy, we're going to have to separate you and split you between three different tournaments. And then you can see this look of horror coming amongst all the players because some of them, some had been, this is only my, my second tour, but some had been down there before and they knew that it was then a, a real lottery as to what kind of hotel you were going to get. <clears throat> so I'm sitting there with Aidan Harrison, a good friend of mine who I was doing all the, all the eight events with, we sat there kind of near the back of the bus. First tour, bus takes off from the airport, going to the city centre, first tour, first hotel we pull up to was a Sheraton Hotel. Looks quite nice, quite palatial in South America in the 90s. You can imagine what, what some of the kind of architecture in the city was like at the time. Eight or ten players get off the bus, door closes, driver takes off. We then pull up next hotel, which turns out to be a Hilton, another really nice hotel. So I'm thinking, right, oh, this is great. Next ten players get off, close the door. About 10, 15 minutes later, bus uh, the school bus stops and we're outside this kind of pretty beat up building, the literally door, the, the front doors hanging on, on his hinges, off his hinges. The, the tournament organiser gets off the bus and he walks in the door. So we think maybe this is his house or, or whatever it is. Comes back in. Okay, guys, let's go. Last hotel. So we, we literally got off the hotel, got our bags. We've walk, walked into this, which could only be described as the, probably the worst bed and breakfast facility you've ever laid eyes on. And there was this guy that must have been about 120 years old sitting behind the desk with the, you know with all of his you know litters of paper and people checking. It took us about 45 minutes to check in. Finally, get the key to the room. No elevator, so we had to walk up four flights of stairs. Finally, get up to the room. Tournaments in August, which is obviously middle of winter in Paraguay. We walked in as we've opened the door where the air conditioning unit was supposed to be. Somebody had obviously stolen it and left the gaping hole in the window so dead of winter no literally a massive draft blowing through the window Aidan and I had to spend the next 10 days we slept literally two layers of clothing tracksuits socks the entire you know the full regalia under the covers trying to stuff our squash bags in the gap to try and stop some draft coming through <laughs> I got absolutely battered by Simon friends and couldn't wait to see the back of Paraguay. It was literally <laughs> horrendous, absolutely horrendous. And then um, second story, uh, we'd obviously just briefly spoken about it. It was, uh, I turned up in Chicago to do a tournament with Joey Barrington, who had previously been at an event in London, the Canary Wharf Classic. 
And because of the sharing room system that they had, the, the budget that they were on at the time, Joey had to share a room with the tournament MC, a guy called Alan Thatcher. Some of you may or may not know of Alan. A little bit uh, on the larger side, quite a tall, kind of stout, stout chap. Anyway, he's sharing a room with, with Joey. And typical Joey fashion, whenever he gets to a hotel, he likes to get all of his shirts and his suits all hung up in the closet. He takes prime position in the wardrobe. <clears throat> anyway, so he shared with Alan. They'd done that event. Joey turns up in Chicago. We get to semifinals night, which is the one of the, the few occasions where Joey and I look to smarten up a little bit and, st and stick our attire on. Joey... <laughs> he goes to put the pants on from his or his trousers, so we call them for his suit. And literally, he could fit two legs into one of the legs. The, he would literally about twelve sizes too big. Only to realise that when Alan Thatcher had checked out of the hotel in Canary Wharf, he'd taken Joey's pants by accident off of his suit rack, put them into his suitcase, and Joey, without thinking, had, had stashed the uh, the suit and then turned up in. But the funny thing was, Joey still had to try. It was the only suit that he had. So he still had to try and wear the suit live on air. Fortunately, the camera shot was only from the waist up. But he was, <laughs> he was literally having to do his commentary uh, holding his trousers up. So it was did, did he wear it for the finals also? He did. Yeah, he had no choice. No that is, yeah. So before we jump off that uh, topic and, and, uh, uh, and go to Connor's hotel story, I just want to know, so let this know be known, PJ... PJ and I kind of knew each other peripherally through squash, like for a few years, like we'd see each other say, hey, I'd see him at the US Open say, hey, not in, we didn't really get to know each other until he literally accosted me. I'm thinking it was probably 2017 or 18 at Drexel where like we're back trying to get set up and he shows up, you know, him and Joey show up the big, the big stars. So like everybody like, oh, they're finally here and da da da. And he comes up and he goes, you know, I've been trying to get in contact with you for months about my hotel because I was the person who set up the hotels for the U.S. Open for the players and for the, you know, the staff and all that. And I said, yeah. And he goes, he goes, you know, you're not very responsive. I was like, well, and Connor could, Connor could attest to this. I don't have a lot of skills. My responsiveness is my only skill. Like literally, <laughs> literally, I respond to everything instantaneously. If I get an email from anyone from at US Squash, I respond to it like immediately. So I am very responsive and also very prickly about people who'd say I'm not responsive. As, so I'm getting a little upset even talking about this. So he said, yeah, Joey and I wanted to stay, I think at the study, study. and we asked if you have yeah, to study. Yeah, yeah, because because they're Joey and PJ, they can't stay at it like the, at the other hotel because they're, you know, they're too important. Um, well, I said, I've never heard from you. He goes, he goes, I texted you and I emailed you and you never responded. And I said, that's not true. I said, I always respond to everything. I go, show me the email. Shows me the email. Not even close to my email address. Like literally not even close. I don't even think, it, I don't think it was to, even to US squash. And I said, show me the, the text, not my phone number. <laughs> Is that, that's all that's a true story uh, 100% PJ. true I hate to yeah you were not in my uh, my good books but. yeah yeah so I mean luckily our relation he's never apologized to me properly for that mind you which Bill I would like to take this opportunity live on air to apologize for being so rude, rude. yeah yes okay yes. okay all right. and, and our relationship okay our relationship has improved since then just say that but that was really my first introduction speaking of Faye Dunaway I mean PJ PJ and Faye Dunaway very similar diva diva status when it comes to that kind of stuff so just I mean it. you guys with the exception of this podcast you guys don't even talk you guys don't even look at each other in the face is no, that no well yeah no, we played golf once <laughs> I wouldn't call it golf. We were on the same course, but we slept. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I, exactly. 
Connor, you, all right. always the best story. I know. No, this is, yeah, this. I know, Bill. You set you set me up here, but right. you, you you know you know what story I'm gonna tell, and I don't remember how how much you remember this, but it's the pants story. Oh, jeez. Yes, I do remember this story. <laughs> and I forget if it's 2011 or 2012, but it was around the U.S. Open, and um, it was the year I was checking in, and with these big hotel blocks that you have, you know, I mean, we're we're booking what like 500 nights sometimes mm, yeah maybe a thousand and um i'm checking in and inevitably there's there's always something wrong somehow so i'm checking in and they're like oh i'm sorry there's something wrong with your reservation mr o'malley and i'm like oh gosh like what is it it's like it says you're going to be here uh 23 days i was like no that's that's right <laughs> <laughs> but uh that just sort of sets the tone for what transpires is and i forget why i was trying to get these pants I think I was probably running out of pants or I needed more pants because I was there for 23 days. Uh, and I was I had ordered some pants online from Bonobos. And um, it turned into this whole saga. of tr Like, it was a five-day saga of trying to get pants delivered to me. And every night, again, we're getting done with the event late at night. It's like you're rolling in 10 p.m., 11 p.m. So you're not, you're not dealing with the cream of the crop of the hotel staff. Like, this is you know, night manager, like, they're just not, they're not, they're there to be nice, but not solve problems all the time. And, and so I'm like, Hey, you know, I've, I'm showing them the tracking number, like, where's my pants? And like, Oh, it hasn't <laughs> showed up yet. And like, it's in the, it's in the shipping department. <laughs> so it's like, okay, all right. Frustrating. Come back next day. It's like, yeah, still hasn't arrived. I was like, well, that's odd. Like it says from FedEx that it has arrived. So you sure you can't check. Yeah. I'll check with the shipping department. I'm come back and, I, and then I'm like, let me try the the day manager. Like, no, we have no record of that that package showing up. I was like, well, hang on. The night manager is saying it's in the shipping department. Can you go talk with the shipping department? Like, like we don't really have a shipping department. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so I was like, I didn't have enough time to deal with it there. But the third night, I'm going back in, and they're like, <laughs> give me the same line. It's like it's with the shipping department. I was like, okay. When you say shipping department, what do you mean? And it's basically a closet. Right, exactly. I know the and hotel. Like, it's a closet. Yeah, it's literally a closet. It's a closet. It's literally a closet. And it's not big. I mean, it's a it's a big, you know, it's a big closet. And the, no joke, there's 150, 250 boxes in there. And I'm like, I'm going through every single box. Now, good news is I knew it was coming in a big FedEx box. So you're just like hunting through a pile. And we finally uh, find it. Um, it, was, it was pretty brutal. Although they did, one thing that did really frustrate me, they said, oh, your roommate signed for the package two days ago. <laughs> Literally. And I was like, show me the log. And my roommate at the time was Preston. And I take a pic. And it was a it was a fake signature. Yeah, it was. I was the like, guy had the guy had faked it because we showed it to guy, Preston afterwards. He's like, "That's not my signature." <laughs> <laughs> and like, we're roommates. Like, really? Do you think that this guy like lost and my roommate forgot to tell me? Like, anyway, right. it was. Um, what what no, what I do you remember of that story? Bill? I remember all of that story, but but honestly, Connor, that is by far not my favorite hotel story with you. My favorite hotel hotel story with you. We'll end the hotel because we're running on thirty minutes of hotel. We actually are have Sheldon on to talk about refereeing. Believe it or not. Um, <laughs> believe it or not is the first time we stayed in a hotel together was in chicago during that same during the what year was that the u.s opened it was outside at, at like the wrigley building 2000 yeah 2009 and we had never roomed together before and so you know me i'm very particular about my habits you 
enjoy watching TV until you fall asleep till all hours of the night. And I like to have the TV off so I could actually sleep because that's what human beings do. Connor being a millennial at the time, I think you were maybe like 28 years old or 29 years old at the time, um, said, said, no, and you made me stay up and I had to watch Tropic Thunder um, with, with Robert Downey Jr. And while I tried to fall asleep, I do fall asleep. So I wake up in the middle of the night and the TV is still blaring. You at the time, um, let's just say you had gained a little weight and you were a little bit bigger than you are now. <laughs> And on your belly, you had your laptop and it was, you were sound asleep and your laptop was rising up and down. Like it was like on a, like on a wave. And I looked over and stared and I said, man, I hate you motherfucker. I hate you. I, I don't think I ever hated someone more in my life than I hated you at that time. So that, that's, that's my hotel memory of you, Connor. And, and that continued every night for like the 12 days we had to stay there. And I had every night I looked over at you with your laptop on your big fat belly going up and down. And I was like, enough, this is enough. So, no offense. You look better now, by the way. Thanks. Congratulations um, on, the, on, the health, on the health. What about ironing and in hotel rooms? I like That's to iron. I like to iron. <laughs> what can I tell you? I like things ironed. I like to iron. But like you do it like 530 in the morning. Yeah, I like to iron. Right. <laughs> you can see we're on opposite schedules here. Yeah, yeah. I like to iron. Well, you know, I was probably up because I was watching your big fat belly rise up and down at 530 in the morning. We might as well get up and iron. Might as well do something. No offense to anybody who's listening who has a big fat belly. By the way. <laughs> All right, let's, let's transition do, out of there. Called, let's, yeah, let's do we'll, what's we'll called a we'll hard cut, transition. We'll... <laughs> hard cut, hard cut uh, into the main breakdown of talking about the fish chain. So Sheldon, getting into your area of expertise, and Bill is going to, you know, obviously ask some more intriguing questions as he already alluded to in the beginning. So let me ask a sort of boring context one where I like to uh, think about it. And for this scope, I would say let's stick to professional events just because I know that you help with numerous events in the U.S., but let's think of just from the professional angle, since that's what gets highlighted the most at this stage. So what is the strategy that you and your team do in terms of like, just let's start with just even staffing, like trying to get your refereeing and officiating team to all of these events? Like how many, what's the depth of your roster? Well, when we're sticking to pro events, <clears throat> we really look at uh, the size of the event and the draw, and more importantly, it's really the scheduling. Are you going to run your whole first round in one day? Are you splitting it into different days? So it really dictates down to the number of matches, how many different venues you're actually going to. So, you know, we, we run pretty limited. Uh, obviously, budgets are always an item for the uh, for the promoters, and we're very cognizant of that. So what we need is really give us the schedule. And, and sometimes that doesn't come out till very late. Where are they going to go? How many venues? Everything's kind of finalizing at the last time. So we look at the level of play, the prize money that's involved, because that really dictates the caliber of, of, of officiating that we need. And then we break it down to how many officials. You divide it by the number of courts. How many, how many matches can you actually do in a day and back to back? And, uh, you know, if you ask, you know, it, it does make a difference when you're doing multiple matches in a row. Uh, some people just say it doesn't matter because they're equally as bad the whole day through. So uh, the more that we're immune to it, the better. You're kind of like doing it in your sleep. But, you know, it really comes down to the scheduling, the level of play, the purse and the number of venues that we're going. And that's how we build our schedule around that. And when you're talking about the caliber mix up of each team, like how would you delineate those levels? I mean, obviously, I mean, with the push of what we've been doing and developing officials, we have different levels of officials. And that really comes down to their experience 
and uh, their frequency and, you know, uh, the, the analysis that we have on all of the officials. So when it comes down to something like a world open, we really look at the end result. How many, you know, which refs do we need from quarterfinals forward? And we need to make sure that we have refs that are able to ref at that standard to have experience. And then we fill in our roster trying to gain experience for refs early on in the early round draws, and then to bring them through and give them exposure with support of top-level referees later on in the event. So for for the world championships that just take place, well, describe the, the size of the team that you had there. So in, in this one, obviously we're in pandemic situation, so we were limited in our ability to bring people in from outside the country that could quarantine, so we drew from our own pool of officials. And so it was different this year because they actually split the first round draw. So we actually ran all of the matches with nine officials. And so many of the refs were doing five, six matches in, in a day, which is pretty exhausting. But, you know, we, we make sure that, you know, we've given them experience. And I know that we were talking about the pro level, but we send a lot of refs to the amateur levels because in a junior open, you're, you could ref eight to 10 matches in a day. So you start to build that up. So, you know, that experience allows you now to get into a pro level and, and kind of concentrate for that period of time. We ran nine, nine refs to, to do the first two, you know, two rounds. Then we dropped down to five refs uh, once we were on the glass and doing eight matches. And uh, then the last four or five days, we were with three referees. I know one of the, um, when we were talking in our pre-interview, you were saying that you guys have actually been doing a lot of tracking and, and keeping stats on how you guys do with it within the refereeing system. So can you give a little example of like what you're tracking there and, and how you guys use that information to improve? Yeah. A, a lot of people don't know what happens behind the scenes. They see the results and sometimes don't know where we're going. And, uh, you know, I always say when we're talking officiating, it's, you know, and, and players, it's kind of like, you know, what a Dalmatian look, you know, thinks of when he looks at a dairy cow. Somehow we think that we're related, but how is that even possible? Um, so w w what, what we've done is probably, you know, in 2015, 2016, there was a big push on trying to reduce stoppages in play unnecessarily. And how can we do that? And right now the logic is everyone thinks that we're just calling more strokes and, and more no let or, and more no lets. But we actually started tracking that. And something that's very interesting as a statistic is back then we were using the three rep system and everyone was saying it made things that were better, but we, we actually tracked all those statistics and people were, you know, you'd be shocked to find out that in those statistics, on average, only 60% of the decisions were unanimous, where all three reps had the same decision. So what that showed us is that there's different views and more importantly, different viewpoints of how everybody is looking. We use the majority decision, not the unanimous decision. So we actually were able to track that data. And now what are we doing? We, we do a lot of time. We're focusing in and you can see it. We focus in on those front corners where how players are going in and out of the, out of the corners. And then that sidewall where we were having a lot of interruptions. So we started looking at the, the statistics that we have, and this is all at the pro level. So over the last, since, four to five years, we've actually dropped the number of decisions that go into reviews, for example. The number of reviews has dropped by 50%. And uh, when we look at continuous play, we look at the number of points played per decision. 
And over this time period, as we've been focusing, we're actually, the players are playing 20% more points now per point played before there's a decision. So that impact is, is, is having an impact on the game. We look at the lets, the no lets and the strokes and the number of lets called is down by 10% over the last few years. So what we do is we're not looking at to say, call more lets and strokes. We're looking to say, hey, what is it that we can do and are we influencing the game to make it more watchable and is it more entertaining and is what we're doing more effective? So the, the number of um, uh, decisions in a match has decreased by 16%. So, you know, we used to look at how many, you know, decisions were in a match, but we break that down by the number of points played. Um, you know, how many points are played per decision? Uh, that, that number is down. And, and this is for all the U.S. statistics. We're, we, you know, it's about 4.55 points are played uh, per, per decision. So those numbers were lower before. So lets are down 10 to 12 percent, which means that we're actually looking on how we can do it, but also influence play in a way that keeps players going. So we use a lot of these analytics to try and guide our line of thinking and to see, are we on the right track? Is what we're doing targeted towards our goal. So a lot of our areas of expertise and, and analytics are applied that way. Wow, that's interesting. That's yeah, really very, interesting. Very, I never very. had any idea that, <clears throat> that the game's been tidied up to quite that extent. So question I had, so when you were talking about assigning referees for matches, do you assign certain referees to ref certain players? Like, do you say, hey, this this looks like this is going to be the matchup, so we want, and I'll just throw out a name, we want John Mazzarella on this, or we want Tamar Al-Nagari on this match because we know their skill set in their player relationship is is this and this, and the outcome would be better. Does that happen? Yes, it does. And and I don't, you know, as the TR, I've been doing, um, running the events as a tournament referee for, you know, 20 plus years in, in different levels. And when I do it, I do it differently. I'm not really matching up the player to the referee. I really am looking to match the personalities up. And I look at things a lot differently because I don't look at some of the players that are, are very uh, direct and, and focused, you know, highly intense players. I don't look to try and clamp down on that <clears throat> with a hard ref. I, I look to see how on the harder players to manage, I like to bring out the characters uh, in that and manage it from a softer approach. So I actually manage and assign refs based on the personalities on how you line that up. So, you know, it's just, you don't fight fire with fire all, all, all the time, but you do want to have somebody that's been experienced enough that when things can go awry, that's the person that we want in the seat to do it. So you want your more experienced referees in there because they've seen it before. You don't want a new referee in there and then have the pressure of being in that match and then overtaken by, you know, the arguments that come from players and how to manage that under pressure. That's interesting. Um, quick question on numbers, Sheldon. Um, you're talking about assigning referees for your pro events. How many different levels of refereeing are there? It would be my first question. And then do we know how many referees are at those different levels? So, and, and where do they start? So you know, if somebody wants to get into the refereeing game, what would the criteria be? You know, do they have to start off refereeing at a, a junior level? Is it a club level? How do they get exposure and experience trying to work up to the levels that you got you top guys are now at? What would the, the procedure on its way 
up to the top. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great question. And there's a lot of continuity in, in the world side in that everyone starts to come with, you know, they've, they've decided that five different levels of officiating is very common. So we developed that several years ago. You're starting to see WSO now apply five levels. I can speak specifically on the U.S. side. That yeah. Our program is very, we, we've gone away from certification driven to developmental driven. So we're very much focused because our needs are so different. We, we have a need that we need more reps because of the number of events that we have at all different levels. And Kevin, several years ago, gave me the direction that we wanted to build from grassroots and up. So how do you do that? And so our first two levels are really, it's all testing because we want people to know the rules. So that you go and you take, we have clinics online. We have, um, you know, our tests that are online linked to everybody's individual membership. And it's free. It's, it's part of the members, you know, uh, uh, you have as U.S. Squash as a member. So our juniors are required to take it in order to play an event. So we're exposing all the reps or, you know, our players, which is our pool to, to draw from at that point. So our first two levels are really take some tests, take some clinics and understand the rules. As we get up to levels three, four, and five, it really comes down to more engagement, experience, and, and, and development. So what we see is in level three, that's where we're starting to see people come out and participate in our events, the college squash, which is excellent. Yeah. Our juniors, our, our U.S. Junior Open is just, you know, with that many matches, it's just triage sometimes that's in yeah. there for, for how many you're trying to manage and, and you're seeing all those different things that happen. There's nothing that I've seen in a pro level event that I haven't experienced in, in, in a junior level. Sure. And then we, we start to develop, we start to send out tests in, in our program. We send out matches and decisions for them to actually test and we bring everybody together. And so they see their decisions and how they compare to everybody else. And I learned a tremendous amount through that process. I've, uh, we, in levels three, four, and five, they're all coming together. We have probably 37 to 38 refs that are in that pool and they're all refing at different levels. And then once you get to level four and five, you're starting to see exposure into uh, the, the PSA levels. Yeah. They're starting to bring them in. They're, they're coming to our sessions at a higher level. We see their participation in our, on our committees. They're starting to teach the rules. We track how many matches that they're doing. We track the level that we're doing. And we also, there's an annual review where Kim and I review every single referee in our program every single year where we see every match that they've done. We've seen their um, participation in all of our clinics. So it's really focused on developing and getting experience and understanding it at the very top level where our level fives are. We require them to participate at our junior programs because these are, are the ambassadors of the, of the game. These are the ones that represent everybody. We require them to teach sessions. We require them to participate in them. So we're really bringing everybody together as a group, and, and, and that's been very developmental. And what we find most interesting is when we run these matches and clinics, I have all their decisions. Wow. And I, I use the, the PSA is involved. We use, you know, I've got coaches and players involved in the decisions. I run these committees to get all the feedback. And no ref gets all the decisions right, in, including me, and I write it. <laughs> so, but I learned so much from it, and we're, that's why we're changing a lot of what we do because we're now, and, and PJ can attest, we, we're bringing coaches and players 
onto the court with the referees during sessions to teach them that if they're going to learn how to apply the rules, it's at a much higher level. And we need to understand how players move and how they play and how to move things in and out of situations. And, uh, you know, in our last session, PJ was actually on court hitting balls and how to move things in. And he's learning from the questions that we're asking and we're learning how he moves. And that's really what we're doing developmentally to elevate the refs in the U.S. for that. Yeah. Sorry to make a short question long. No, that's, no, that was... that's, that's interesting. Very interesting. So on, on the pro level, a couple questions, a little bit more um, player driven. Who is your least favorite player to referee men or women uh, on the PSA tour? And, and why is it Gregory Gaultier? <laughs> <laughs> no, it, you know, it depends. You know, it, it's, a, it's a different, you know, you're on a lot of pressure when you go into these matches. And, you know, I, I've over the years, I used to be really nervous about refing anybody. And, you know, a, a lot of refs think that if you ref the difficult players and do it well, your life, you, you've reached your pinnacle. Um, I've really come into, you know, where I've thought, I, I love the matches where I know that the players play their best and to create that forum. I don't have, I, I like the matchups. You know, when, when you look at the matchups that it is, you know, when you look at, you know, do I like, I, I love Marwin and, and, and Muhammad. And, and Ali, when you see those two against each other, you know that that's going to be an, a very an intense match. But I get to sit and, and participate in that. And uh, I, I don't have any, you know, I've had negative experiences. I've had people screaming murder at me for, uh, for their decision. And, and I understand that. But I, I don't have, I, I love all the players. And, and I'm just, it's, for me, it's a privilege to be in there and to be part of that game and to see it. And you know what? I screw things up. We, I, we, I make mistakes. And I, I'm fortunate enough that some of the players, I don't mind discussing it with them. And we've brought them even into our sessions where they see where, you know, they, they've heard me say that was my decision and they disagreed. And I, I agreed. They're right. And I, you learn from that. You mean your your good decisions help your success. Your poor decisions help you improve. I think, is that, there, I, I, sorry, I think that's been one of the biggest moves forward, though, Sheldon, is the interaction between the, the, the referees the, the PSA and the players now. The, the, it's the communication where, and I've been privy to this as well. I've been in some referees meetings with you guys and we brought players in and we've shown them decisions. And, and just just to clarify, one of the, the, the biggest problems is not all of the players know the rules to the letter. So that's what you're dealing with. Sometimes the players will be in certain predicaments or situations that in their head, the way that they've grown up playing, they think that that's the rule. And they can they can do things a certain way. Where in actual fact, when it's it's really interesting. I've seen the players change literally instantly when it's explained to them that this is the actual ruling, and this is why we're. What's in- what's an example of that, PJ? Uh, front left corner was always a massive issue for for certain players. The backhand counter drop, and a lot of players. Bill Bill mentioned the name there, Gaultier. His movement, he always had a very long uh, last stride. He would leave a trailing leg near the tee, so his front leg would go in and he would play the drop and then he would back straight up in, into that same position where he held that position on the tee. Now, that is something that he used to train that particular way for so many years. And then the rule came out that the player needs to be given direct access to the ball and provide a path for the opponent to to go through and play it. Whereas with that particular movement from Gaultier, he would he would be stuck in the way. And if it wasn't intentional blocking, but he would block that path through. And all of a sudden, 
Borja Golem was another uh, culprit where the player started to give strokes against the, the striker and they, you know, they're completely bamboozled and, and screaming at you, why on earth are you giving strokes away? And then when they're brought into the room, they're shown the scenarios and they're explained the rules and why the referees are given the decisions they are. You can instantly see the, 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 the change in the demeanour. And I, I think yeah. it's hurt both, not only the referees, I think it's helped the players as well. The, the communication for me is such an integral part of what will bring the game forwards. And, and I also think the players, and Sheldon, you could concur with this, and I also have some selective amnesia when it comes to them knowing the rules. Like they know the rules if they're watching a match on TV or in person, but when they're involved with it and something like PJ suggests happens, they're like, oh, I didn't know that. I'm like, yeah, you did. I mean, it's, 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 it's like when, when we play golf with people who play golf all the time and they hit the ball into a hazard, they're like, oh, what happens now? It's like, well, the same thing that happened the last 30 times you did the same thing. <laughs> and just because it's affecting you now, you don't know the rule and now you need to be explained that you need to take a drop and all that. You know the rule. Yeah. It's just happening to you. And, and player, squash players are just like that. They're like, oh, I didn't know. Well, yes, you did. You've well, been playing this game your whole life. Players are also very aware of what they're doing out there, Bill. Trust yeah. me, as a, as a pro, as an ex-player, if there's a particular movement that you've made, when you know the rules, you know exactly why you're doing it and you know exactly when you've done it. It's not like this kind of... Right. And I think that's that's a lot of the issue with, with the pro tour when people are looking at this stuff is like a lot of people blame the refs. But to me, I'm pro ref. And I I mean, I know what a tough job it is just by watching and talk, hearing the guys talk. A lot of these players are con men. I mean, they're trying to get away with stuff, right? I mean, it's that's their job. They're trying to win money and they're trying to get away with stuff. And they all the fancy is the player screaming at the ref and looking back at the glass and yelling, review, 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 banging his racket. They don't realize that like the pro did it on purpose. He knows he's wrong, but he knows if he calls for review, there's a chance that that review referee may change the call. Yeah. Uh, and, and it looks bad for everyone, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, well, one of the things that we're doing is we're trying to teach the officials to communicate better uh, with the audience. So you start to use language that other people can understand. I mean, there's always a debate about, you know, lets and strokes and no lets, but no one understands what the ref's thinking. So you hear them just say out these technical terms. And so what we're trying to say, explain what you're seeing as if you're telling the person next to you so then everyone starts to understand that process. And really, that's what differentiates the, you know, the by the book referees versus the ones that kind of feel the game. And to PJ's point, getting the players, they're starting to learn that we're learning from them. We're not enforcing our rules on them. We're learning our game to do that. And Kareem Gouad was, was a great example where he hated coming to the U.S. because every time he came, he got penalized and we, the refs were out to get him. And we brought him into a session. And when he came out of that back left corner, he goes, I was told that I always go back to the tee. That's what I'm coached. And then we showed him, if you move this way, you got no let. If you move this way, you got a stroke. And that changed really how he, you know, when he left the next year, he came back and was appreciative of it. And as opposed to thinking that at least we opened that dialogue for him. And, and that's why we're really trying to understand better players' movements and coaches. I learn a lot more from my review analysis of matches from the players and coaches than I do from the refs. So PJ, I was, I was curious, what would your thoughts be? You and Joey are doing a, uh, a, you know, a PSA TV event. And when I watch now, I watch NFL football and uh, watch MLB baseball, but especially in NFL football, where there's so many decisions that are made and there's replay in the whole, in the whole deal. And it's very controversial, yeah. but they have now in the booth with them, a referee, like 
Joe Smith, who was an NFL official for 30 years, and they say, explain that rule and explain why this is the call or why they're going to make this call. And it's so clarifying. And you, you know, you're like, oh, that makes sense. Or no, that really doesn't make sense. But you have someone there where in your guys' booth, although Lee Drew is very, very involved with the officials, he's not a referee. He is no. not. No. What, what would your thoughts be of having why you guys are doing that? And he doesn't always have to comment on everything. But when it comes to critical calls, having a referee there and say, hey, why did that guy call a stroke? Why did that get overruled? Uh, do you think that would be a good idea? Or do you think that's just overkill? No, I think it's a good idea. And in actual fact, a couple of years ago, we had the ability to speak with the video referee just to ask the reason. So the situation would unfold. The decision would get asked for by the player. The central referee would offer it up to the video ref. The video ref would take a look at the situation on the monitors, then give his decision. After he'd given that decision and then the next rally started, Joey and I would get be connected or we'd have somebody speak to the video ref just to ask the reasoning behind the decision that he just made. And it could be, well, we felt that the ball at the front was too good of a quality or that the line that he took was the wrong line or whatever. We would then say that on air. And I just feel for everybody's gain and benefit, really. It gives the viewers, the refs, the players, um, the commentators, an insight as to the mind and the way that the, the video ref and the central referees are viewing that particular scenario. So I think that would be a great addition. However, one of the problems that also used to happen when we first started commentating, we would be in the vicinity with the same, with the video ref. And bef and this is a, an error on Joey's and my part where we would already give our opinion on the decision before the video ref had even had an opportunity to look at it himself. So almost influencing the video ref, which looking back now was probably the wrong thing to do, but I certainly feel that it would be a great addition just so we know what's... Uh, you know, there's a there's a great story that when we first started video referee, or like the, the video reviews, the technology hadn't caught up. So PJ commentating and me as the video review were watching the same computer screen right beside each other. So I'm looking at it and Joe and, and Joe DJ, they're in my ears saying, oh, that's a terrible decision. I don't know how that's going to be overturned. And then it's like, oh, goodness gracious. That's, how did he overturn that? I don't know what the ref was thinking. And like, you guys like, are like 12 inches away from each literally, other. Literally. Yes. It's the exact same screen. Yeah. Oh, but, my gosh. <laughs> That is hilarious. But, but, you know, on the video review, people don't also understand that, you know, the view of the camera is fundamentally different. And, you know, everyone thinks the overhead camera is overhead. It's actually on the front wall. So that when you, we, we actually marked it on a court. When you look at the ball, the ball on a backhand, on the back wall camera, there's a distance of almost four feet different than when you look at it from overhead and where you're gauging it. So we, you know, the views are all different. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So, so uh, can you debunk a, uh, a conspiracy theory that's out there among squash fans that, um, so say you're John, let's take, and I'm just throwing names out there. This is totally hypothetical. John Mazzarella, who's considered like the godfather of refing, uh, is refing a match. He makes a call. Somebody else is the video replay referee that they, they asked for the video replay. Are people are referees fearful of overruling certain referees, despite the fact the call might be wrong? Did they did they say, "Hey, I'm not I'm not going to overrule John Mazzarella and make him look bad, even though this call is wrong"? We'd we'd hope that that's not the case. 
Um, you know, I, I think that what, what I do is when the problem that we have with some of the refs at the high level is they, they don't look at the decisions in context. So we want refs to be following the matches and we understand that rules are subjective and that referee A refs different than referee B. So I ref matches and my line of thinking is different than anyone, than, than, than a John Mazzarella. So when I'm looking at the match, I need to make sure that I'm aware of what's going on and I'm listening to him through the whole match so I understand his line. I don't want to take a, a decision that's out of context just because I would look at it one way and versus another. We want to make sure that we're on the same page and that the rule is you know, applied the correct way. So um, I, don't, I, I would hope that our refs are experienced enough to be confident enough to, to do that and to put through and be able to defend it. But more importantly, understand that your decision affects a series of decisions, not just one decision in a match. And that's how we want to, you know, you throw a, a, a way out of line decision, which happens, it disrupts the whole match. And then the players are thinking it's the ref's fault and, and a match can, you know, degrade to that. Got it. I mean, within the sport, there's so many areas of, of gray. And I think that's what we're trying to eliminate. To, so then the players on court are really... Uh, you know, it's, they're winning or losing the points and not, and not putting in the referee's decisions hands. Like what are, how are you guys working towards reducing that area of gray for the game at the pro level? So the interesting thing is where we started this on, in our program four to five years ago, where I'm sending out the matches and I get all the decisions in and the most important thing is everyone is so as a ref, you have to be right all, all of the time. And so now when we're getting these decisions, everyone wanted to be their decision would be the one that would be accepted. And we're finding that um, even the, you know, uh, as the top referees, you know, I'll just say if it's myself, if 30 people see it one way and I see it a different way, the problem isn't always that I'm right and everyone else is wrong. I need to be able to see it. It's kind of like Larry King after his seventh divorce said, I'm starting to think that the problem might be me. <laughs> <laughs> so what happens is now that I put this out and I do it all anonymously. So nobody knows whose decision it is, but as soon as they get the decisions, they try and figure out whose is theirs and how did they do against everybody else. And what we're found is that the reps that are starting to understand for an alternative view. And when I, when I build these clinics together, I get consensus of not what your decision is, what are we going to teach this decision as? And that's starting to narrow the gap so people are on the same page and can explain it. So, you know, in that front left-hand corner, if I've got 30 lets, at some point I need to change something that's gonna make those, that ball go away. So you're hearing things that come out of these discussions like, don't hit a shot that you can't get out of the way. Like, get, 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 you know, that's a Mike Rileyism that that really describes that. That's not in the rules, but it's an application of the rules that gives people an understanding to say, if you're gonna, you you, you have to hit a different shot. Yeah. Um, and if you do, get get out of the way. And and so that's really how we're trying to get that clarity of getting everybody on the same page because we want everyone to have a tolerance of the line and then be able to communicate and explain it in language that's usable for, for people. I know you guys have been, uh, and, and the tour and, and it's, it's really a team effort towards, uh, improving the game, but 
technology isn't always the solution, but it can be sometimes a very uh, a, a hugely beneficial thing to include. What technologies, if you could wa- wave a magic wand, could you see being implemented immediately that you you as the refereeing team and the officiating team would like to see? You know, I mean, I think that the decision making is always going to be the human side. The, the, the things that we can eliminate to get right are important. Those front line tins that, that are close, I think that we're getting better on the pickups of the, of the balls, but the camera angles aren't always great. Even when we review those after, we're not getting them all right. And we still can't get an agreement on some of those balls. So really increasing the, uh, the clarity of, of some of the double bounces getting cameras on all the lines. And that's why, you know, you hear the refs say the line calls aren't reviewable because the angle of the camera doesn't accurately show where it is because we don't have 10 cameras on every single line uh, throughout it. But along with that technology has to come with the speed of being able to make that decision because we don't want it to disrupt the game. I agree. I think in in those areas where it is actually black and white, where did it hit the line or not, I do think that if we can infuse technology that helps address that would give like way more confidence to the players too you know and i think we did actually have uh, one year when we had the world series finals in dubai connor um we brought in a super slow-mo camera which they actually use in the tennis when you see players hitting certain shots and they slow the ball down coming off the racket uh, the strings and we we brought one in uh, ziad brought one in for that particular week and it was it was noticeable how many less issues there were with the double bounces because of the speed of the frame of the, the lens of the camera. You could see because sometimes now when we going back to Sheldon's point that they're still unclear about some of the pickups and the double bounces, which I agree have got so much better. There's still a blur of the ball when, when impact point. You can still it's not a very clear image of the ball. We have had that previously, so that is just a case of trying to get the funds in to get in these kind of cameras that will make that particular job easier. So to wrap this up, uh, we're getting well over the hour. I I just have um, Sheldon. I I appreciate Sheldon as a referee because he, number one, he's Canadian, so he's so friendly. And like when he when he describes his decisions, he he just consistently says the same thing over and over again to the player and to the player. He basically just wears the player down where the players can't argue anymore because Sheldon won't answer his question. He'll just say the same thing over and over again. And so um, the, my favorite Sheldon Anderson story, and I, I'll get the year wrong and Connor, I don't know if you were privy to this or not. We're up at Yale university. It was the U S junior open, as you know, which is just a massive amount of matches. And it's just a mess of just, a, it's just chaos, organized chaos, basically and international players. So we're now into the Sunday rounds, like where, like people are playing, even though they've lost like six times and they're still playing for some odd reason, they're still, still on court and, and playing. And these two international kids who are probably like 14 or 15 years old, played a match, shook hands, played a match. Turned out they walked off court. They weren't supposed to play each other. They weren't even on the same draw. And they, they're coming up and arguing with Sheldon that like the match shouldn't count. And Sheldon literally, and these two kids barely understood English. The, either one barely understood English. And I, I wrote it down exactly what Sheldon said, because he literally said it like 10 times. He said, the players were trying to explain to him that, you know, we shouldn't have played and this match shouldn't count. Sheldon said, said this to them. A match was played. A score was recorded. 
And the kids looked, said, yeah, but we weren't supposed to play in their broken English. They weren't supposed to play. And Sheldon looked at him again, said, a match was played, a score was recorded. And this went on for almost five minutes where these kids were arguing and Sheldon kept saying, finally, the kids were so baffled, they just walked away. And like, we never heard about it again, the rest of the thing. Do you, do you recall that, Sheldon? I, I do very well. And <laughs> even their parents were there. It would just be the same thing. And it's like, uh, they asked the same question 10 different ways. So I just thought, you know, I, I've learned my lesson. It's the decisions aren't the problem. It's the explanations that get you into trouble. So I just stuck with that one the whole way through. I, I sat on the stairs and my head was in my hands. I was laughing so hard because he just kept saying over and over and over again. It was awesome. So uh, I, 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 and I kind of see that when he referees pro matches and explains the decision, he'll just say the same thing over and over again, be it to Tarek Maron, be it to, you know, Diego Ellis, whoever. He just says it over and over again. All I could harken back is to a match was played, a score was recorded. <laughs> Love it. Love yeah. it. One very quick question. Do you think there would be a potential place for matches to be played with just a no let and strokes as the decision? Eliminate the let ball. I, I mean, I know that that's been, been tried. I think that it's there, but you know, sometimes yeah. it's just a let. Yeah. And you know, if, you know, when, when I've seen those play, you know, there's some matches that thrive in it. You get Galifi and Palmer out there. <laughs> They're going to get that ball, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, w w when I play, um, I don't play with any lets. I don't ask for lets because uh, I don't trust the refs. So I, I tell them, <laughs> you know what? I'm going for that ball, so you better get out of the way. Uh, it, it helps the clearing and the short collection. I mean, yeah, yeah. But, you know, at, at a high level, I mean, it's entertaining and to do it on the exhibition side. But, you know, the, the basis of the rules is really um, safety and fair play. And, and sometimes even when they had those no let, yeah, those without the let games, um, there had to be a, a situation where there was one. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that we're trying to avoid them. But, you know, you know, we, we look at the breakdown of, of strokes and lets and, you know, the, that number is decreasing, yeah. which shows that the players are hitting shots into, into those areas. And, and they're, they're learning on how we're doing it. We're trying to change the game and improve it. I just the, the reason I say that is because when I think back to my playing days, tournament play is obviously very different. But if ever I played friendly matches or exhibition matches, shall we say, there weren't there were never any lets. You just played, you know, I would play against fellow top 10 professionals uh, just to get some you know match play or whatever it was and when we played in those in that particular environment you wouldn't stop and ask for a let it was either a stonewall stroke or you knew you couldn't get the ball there was never so I'm convinced as a player that the, that that attitude and that game style could could be moved across into the pro game I, I, I think that that's definitely a possibility if you can if we can bring that across yeah, I think that we're trying to reduce it. I, I think that the problem that we have is that on an exhibition level, you're trying to continue the rally. Yeah. But what happens with a lead is you put yourself out of position by playing through the interference and you end up losing the point because of playing through it. So you're more apt to try and win the point and you don't want to be out of position to win the point. I think that that's the battle that we, we just have to face. I agree with you. Yeah. It, it would actually make my life easier if I had one less, <laughs> you know, magic eight ball that I had to shake to try and figure out. And I only have two decisions. The odds of me getting them right, are, you know, actually increase. Yeah. <laughs> 
I, I, I like the tagline. Sometimes it's just a lot. I mean, you guys should put that on T-shirts on your uh, refereeing uh, attire for every tournament going forward. <laughs> sometimes, yeah, if, if, if you go looking for something, you're likely going to find it. So you know, listen. Sometimes it, it no one's at fault. You, you just you just got to do it. You know, yeah. and, and 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 be fair. And, and you know, I love the characters in the game, and they they bring out a lot of great things. I like it. Thanks, Sheldon. Uh, we appreciate it. Uh, that was an awesome time this morning. So uh, thank you very much for enlightening us and opening up the curtain and, you know, behind the curtain and what goes on. No, it's great. Great to be here. Thank you for including me. Wait, 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 wait. There's more? Hey, quick time out to hear a word from our sponsor. The innovators at ProSport LED develop custom solutions for each individual sport based on photometric studies, as well as understanding the needs of all people involved in the sport, from amateur players to the professionals, but also from the spectators to the facilities team taking care of the building. They'll develop the most technologically advanced LED lights. What's also great about this advanced LED technology is it takes the standard features, but then goes further by addressing three more problems that competitors don't. They cure any glare issues or being blinded by the lights while playing your chosen sport. Each individual slim profile fixture can be Wi-Fi enabled so you can control the lights from the phone in your pocket. And they are perfect for the digital first media approach by providing 4K quality and consistency for any film or photography needs. Go beyond standard basic lighting. ProSport LED has you covered. Your trusted source for sports facility lighting with advanced LED technology. These lights are the perfect solution for anyone building a new facility, but also easy to retrofit into existing buildings, likely saving you money in the long run. Find out more info by going to squashradio.com LED. We think they're great, and so will you. Bill, welcome back to your favorite segment on the planet, the appendix. The appendix, uh, yeah. Um, it's been a long time since we've done actual. We've had actual fan follow up for the appendix. We've been doing some different things for the appendix. Um, but for this time, we actually have a bunch of follow up. I think um, my love of the movie Vision Quest struck a chord with the uh, TBD audience for sure. Um, I have to admit, I haven't watched it yet, but it is on my. Uh watch list so right we'll, we'll see when that comes true for sure no it was a good episode but, with sheldon and pj uh getting into the nitty-gritty about refereeing uh, you know typically refereeing and sheldon was a little worried that the subject was a little dry and um but it wasn't to me it was fascinating listening to like what they go through and believe me i i am a pro referee and think that they get such a raw deal and such a bad name and um i think I, I think honestly, as I always say, I think it's more the player's fault than the referee's fault. And I, I think uh, I think Sheldon talking about how, like what they're doing to improve refereeing shows they're not just throwing people out there and just hoping for the best. There, there there's a science behind this, and he really informed our audience about that. So um, it, it was interesting. And and talking about our hotel adventures was uh, was fun. It, it brought me back to my hotel days, which uh, <laughs> I know we. I'm sure there's more segments we can do in that. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. One thing that struck out to me with what Sheldon's approach was, was a differential between not just looking for certification, but for development. Right. You know, that really, I think, is an important thing and creating that dialogue between the understanding of the players and the referees, because I think that's where ultimately it's trust in the right decisions. And that's what I think 
boils over is the player is not always trusting the the referee's decision. I think experience makes all the difference. And I, I do enjoy refereeing myself as well. But, you know, actually, one thing I remember that didn't come up that we should couch to bring PJ on or, or someone else. But the question often comes up that, hey, these referees don't understand it because they've never played at that level. Then they'll go, X pros should be referees. And I'm like, you're right. Yet they just won't. <laughs> exactly. I meant to ask that to Sheldon, what what his answer is for that when people say, how, how can you ref these folks when you've never played at this level? But you know what? Officiating, I mean, how many NFL officials played NFL football? How many Major League Baseball umpires? I don't think there's one Major League Baseball umpire literally who's who's played Major League Baseball. I mean, I could be right. wrong about that, but I think we would know. NFL, I don't know, but I, I doubt also that there's any NFL referees that played NFL football. So I think that's a, that, that's a bad argument. Well, and that's what I'm saying. So it's like, it's like, okay, sure, maybe they would be the best, but they're just not doing it. So it's an irrelevant um, point right, of view. Right. I, th- I think it, I think it would be fun to have them referee just to, so they could see how tough it is. And, and, and maybe, well, they, maybe they would gain a level, a, a level of respect. Because I think that is the issue is the, the lack of respect the players have exactly. for the, the referees, I think is the biggest issue. Um, and I think it's exacerbated by the powers that be who don't give the referees the officials respect. So I think it just trickles down to the players and the players just take their cue from the administration of squash. And uh, from what I've seen anyways, from uh, kind of like looking in from, from the inside, if you will. Well, and that also shows in terms of not too long ago, like, I mean, 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, the losers of professional matches used to have to referee at certain tournaments. So like that at least shows that there's progress being made, that there's non pros officiating. So Anyway, so, topic for another time. Yeah, for sure. So, so I have a couple things going on in, in, in my life right now that I need to to solve. So we'll get through this. Number one, I, I ordered, um, and I know this is a way off topic. So for anybody <laughs> out there who, who gets weird websites sent to them by their friends about like the deals of a lifetime, I ordered, you know what Yeti is? You know what a Yeti cooler yeah. is? So I've always wanted They're really expensive. Tell me about it. And I'm, you know, I am like, so cheap. I'm so cheap. There's no way I'm ever buying one at re- retail value for sure. No chance. Isn't it three to $500 depending three on the to, size? Three to $500. So, so I always wanted like just to start off, I wanted like the Yeti koozie, you know, where you could keep your beer cold in a Yeti koozie, but those are even like 30 bucks. And I'm like, I'm not spending 30 bucks on a koozie. So I was in Walmart the other day and I saw a Yeti style koozie with like a fake Eastern mountain sports logo on it for six bucks. So I bought it and it works like magic. It's like ridiculous that I don't know. It's got to be the same technology. It keeps a tall boy beer cold from start to finish, no matter how hot it is outside. It's just absolutely incredible. Life-changing for sure. So because of that, a buddy of mine sent me a link uh, for Yeti coolers. And a $300 Yeti cooler was being advertised on this website for $69. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, I mean... So I bit the bullet and I ordered it. And so Did it this, come? Well, it's, it's been three weeks now. And <laughs> so yesterday, after not hearing a thing, I paid and the charge went through on my credit card, $69 plus like and no shipping, which also $69 with no shipping. So with tax, it was like yeah, 70 something's seven. off, right? Something's off for sure. So I hadn't heard anything, but you know what? For that kind of, I, I'll, I'll, eat the, I'll eat the charge as they say. But yesterday I got a thing from the company and it's an Asian company and they sent me a tracking number, a tracking like thing. And it's all in Chinese. Oh, wow. So I click on it and it goes to other things that are all in Chinese. So it yeah, says your yeah. item, it said your item has been shipped. Click here for tracking information. And the tracking link was Chinese. You click on it and every, it goes to this web. I don't know what you know. It's literally all Chinese. So I have no idea where it is right now. Do you, think it, 
Do you think it's like actually like a yelly, not I, quite a, yet, a yeti? I never thought of that until like last night when I saw the link and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, so so TBD fans stand, uh, you know, stay tuned for my my yeti adventures to see if I actually get the yeti. So, uh, but but I digress. That's 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 the big issue in my life right now. So, but moving you, on, go ahead. quickly because you've also been doing those video promos, which people are eating up, and a lot of them have been taking place on the boat. What are you gonna do? when the boat isn't the backdrop. Have you thought of that yet? It's tough. Uh, the, the thought of boating season ending, because I've had a knock on knock on wood, I've had a very solid boating season. You you who also own a boat and understand the trials and tribulations of owning an old boat and the fact it breaks down like every week and there's always an issue with it. And every time you turn the key, you just close your eyes and pray that it starts. So yes, it's been such a great boating season and having fun doing those promos. And, um, and uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, no idea what we're going to no do. Idea. We're going we're gonna to have to, uh, I think we have to break out the wetsuit. A little some wetsuit promos what do you think the tbd fans are like me in the full wetsuit doing the promos so video requests uh backdrops are are, are certainly uh yeah, in order yeah. i'll go out there well, i'll go out there till november so i'm i'm out i'm on the boat till november so let's 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 uh keep our fingers crossed that all goes well and every time i turn the key that it actually starts so i like it well let's shift into uh the fan follow-up section and uh like you said we we do get we do get a fair amount of fan follow-up so we're we're picking a few of the highlights here and one of they're all good, but this is this one I thought was pretty funny, um, which was uh, actually a longtime host, first time listener, uh, <laughs> with her, with her co host PJ. PJ listened to Squadcast as he calls our show all the time, <laughs> as he refers to our show. I I was talking to him and I was just like, well, what do you think of what do you think? You know, how is it going? And he's like, actually, I haven't, I haven't listened back to any of them. I was like, what? So um, he's probably not even listened to an appendix, to be honest. So there's, there's I, no chance he's listening. I to feel like appendix. we should do uh, what are they called? Like little egg Easter eggs? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, there's no, there, there, there's no chance he's listening to it. So what was this? What was his thoughts? Did he like it? He, he actually liked it. There's like there. Uh, he's like, I thought we did a good job. You know, he he was even laughing at certain. He was laughing at certain parts, which means like, hey, look, at least we're making ourselves laugh, which is, you know, audience of three, check. Um, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, that's, I awesome. That no, that's that. awesome. Nice to, that thanks for listening, PJ. We appreciate it. I, I wonder if he's subscribed and downloads. Oh gosh, we got to tell him to do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, should, that, should, that should be fun. Another <laughs> one, um, and I've gotten certain random connections like this, but this is pretty funny. I forget how I stumbled on it. Could have been via email or on one of the websites, but I clicked a link, and because um, it was the uh, the Force X, the Bio Force X, mm -hmm. and. On Squash Source, which is done by a great squash fan, uh, Pierre. Pierre from who, Philly. From Philly, yeah. And he um, does reviews of all equipment. And mm -hmm. he's great at this stuff. He even does YouTube videos, really like all that. So he's he's great at doing content. And that's on, on the side. He's, he's actually like a working professional dad. So it's great that he has such a high passion. But um, he did a review of the Bioforce X. And uh, I was like, he learned about it because of the they sponsored the podcast. Awesome. Awesome. Did it, and, and Connor, did anyone comment on his post? Because I, I know, you know, like us, we always hope that some people watch and comment. So we know people are listening. Did anyone comment on his post about Bioforce X? Th there was. Uh, what, what, could, it just says Bill. We don't know who or whatever. I love the podcast they advertise on. I would buy them just for that reason alone. Oh, Pierre, wow. So a fan. A fan. Pierre, a very sophisticated uh, response had that certainly appointment viewing. That a boy, Pierre. Yeah. Well, yeah. Bill, whoever you are, sharp. 
sharp as a tack by, uh, but I'm glad you're listening. So, uh, and, and even better, you're uh, patronizing our sponsors, which we, which we like. So I got one of our favorite listeners, uh, Ricky from Philly. Uh, so a lot of the listeners commented on our movies. Like there was some, you know, what we could talk about what we thought about the Olympics and all that, but it's such a, it's, we've, we've pounded that into the ground, but I like reading the, the, the comments about our movie choices. Ricky from Philly was probably the harshest. Um, I would say of all the people he said, uh, the fact that Bill had three Kevin Costner sports movies, which I did, which were American Flyers, Tin Cup, and Bull Durham, and did not include For Love of the Game is, quote unquote from Ricky, ridiculous. So Ricky, I like you, Ricky. I mean, I, I've never met you before, Ricky, but you seem like a really good guy, and I really appreciate you listening, and your comments are usually pretty learned, but For Love of the Game is not a sports movie. I mean, baseball's in it, but it's it's a rom-com. Well, I don't know if it's a rom-com. It's a, 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 a rom-drama, a rom-drama. And, yeah, Mondra. it's a category. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, and and the woman in it is just drags the movie down. I mean, R.I.P. Kelly Preston. I know she just recently passed away. So and so, I don't want to confuse the person with the actress, but I think it's Kelly Preston who plays his ex-wife slash girlfriend slash whatever she is. The scenes with her and her kid are interminable and unwatchable. And for you to even compare, for love of the game, with Bull Durham, Tin Cup or American Flyers is a travesty and almost to the point where I want to suspend you from being able to send in feedback anymore. But I won't because, not, you know, because we love you, Ricky. But come on. That, that was, I mean, that's... Way to cultivate fans, Bill. I mean, there's a couple good baseball scenes in there, but I mean, it, it's fine. But yeah, Kevin Costner grabbing because his arm hurts or whatever. No, there's no, no, no. So I, I want to... Ricky, take... keep sending them in. I'll read the fan follow-up. Oh, my God. So... Jason from North Carolina, who writes me often about the uh, about the podcast, always very complimentary. Uh, Love the podcast. He wrestled in high school and likes Vision Quest. And he also says he finds the jump rope pre-match scene set to Lunatic Fringe, which we all remember. Lunatic Fringe. We all know you're out there. You're in hiding. Blah, 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 blah. You know that song, right, Connor? No? Now of you, course. Uh, yeah. It's on my... Uh... Yeah. Watch so list he, as well. He found that a source of motivation while he was wrestling. And he actually suggested there's a wrestling movie with Paul Giamatti called Win Win. And I, uh, I I look forward to actually, since since he uh, is a Vision Quest fan, I'm going to become a Win Win fan. So I'm going to look that up and watch it. He also was very impressed with PJ's love and insights into American cinema. <laughs> which which kind of made it sound like like PJ like lives in a, like a third world country or something. I mean, he lives in England for God's sake, so I think he could probably get all the same movies we do. But either way, thank you. Different Jason. names, you never know. <laughs> that, is, that that is very very true, very very true. So one of uh, one of our frequent listeners, Carl from Massachusetts, also had never seen Vision Quest before, so he went and looked it up on IMDb and uh, read a review about it, which talked about basically just what I talked about. And as he said, he thought that I had probably written the review because it gave it a, uh, a nine out of 10 <laughs> on, on IMDb. So he said, and, and I'm not quite sure because, because Carl's a little bit older than me. He's not, no offense, Carl. I know you're just a little bit older than me. You said you promptly requested the DVD from your library. Amazingly, there was not a long queue for it and you could pick it up tomorrow. So I don't know if he's like making fun because I said to for you to pick it up at Blockbuster or if Carl actually orders DVDs from his library still, which is possible. I don't know. It's a good deal. They're free. Yeah, I guess. I guess. Do you yeah. think that's a thing? You could actually do that? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I didn't back, know that. Back when, um, when, I was, when I still had a DVD player, I was doing that. Okay. Every I, once in a while. I, I told well, them. Well, it was also like the library was closer than Blockbuster for me. So. Yeah, I know. But like... <laughs> like, like I, I don't know. Can't you stream these things now? I mean, did, does anybody actually use the DVDs anymore? 
Well, I mean, like I said, on Vision Quest, I think it's it's in Betamax or VHS. So the okay. fact he's he's finding it on DVD is impressive. Very, very, as, as I told him somewhat facetiously, I said, uh, whatever you do, don't take the newspaper off the rod. Uh, does that mean anything to you? Do you remember going Not, to the library when you, oh, were, yeah. and you, and you had to read the newspaper <laughs> when it was like on the rod? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a good, that's a good one, Bill. Uh, thank you. I, I, so, Carl, lo love you, Carl. <laughs> I, I, I kind of hope you're serious about the DVD. I kind of hope you're not. I'm not sure which I delete on that. So, um, so uh, a new a new person, uh, a new uh, new TBD fan writing, and he's listened to all the episodes, but first time writing in, as far as I can see, Richard from Canada. We're getting some Canadian viewers, uh, some Canadian listeners. And he was very upset that Rocky's two, three, and four were our favorite movies. I think uh, PJ liked two, I liked three and you liked four if i'm not mistaken yes was the yeah. order he he obviously is a little more cultured than us and he came up with his top three movies which were his number third was invictus with matt damon which i've never heard of oh no it was it was, it was it's a it's a legit movie it's what's uh, a sport rugby oh okay well i'll yeah. then and I, I like matt damon so i, I will is that yeah, that's not the one that's not the one with um with where they talk about Nelson Mandela, is it? It is. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yes, I have heard of it. I've never seen it. Raging Bull was his second, which obviously uh, all-time classic movie, and I think Robert De Niro won the Academy Award for it. So, again, uh, I've seen Raging Bull. Great flick, but not watchable. Like I can't watch Raging Bull. Like if it's on TV, like and, and I'm just laying on the couch type of thing. I always go by the rewatchability of it. I would watch. Um, <laughs> I would watch Vision Quest a thousand times over. And the fact that Vision Quest never won an Academy Award, by the way, you know that's that's just robbery. Highway robbery. His number one was Jim Thorpe, All American, with Burt Lancaster. Mm. So never seen. I've never seen that. I got. I have to imagine that is an old movie. So I didn't look it up, but I'm guessing it was. It was back at Burt Lancaster was the star because Burt Lancaster. I think the last movie I saw him in was um, Field of Dreams, and that was a long time ago, um, where he played Moonlight Graham as an adult, like Doctor Graham. So I, I have never seen Jim Thorpe All American, but I mean, we, we also missed like Pride of the Yankees with Lou Gehrig. I mean, uh, you know, with Gary Cooper. So if we're going that far back, but hey, not to castigate Richard. Thanks for and listening. Ri Richard has emailed before. Has so, oh he has again. emailed before. You know, yeah, you, yeah, you, yeah. You, well, you got to forward these to me, Connor. Uh, how am I supposed to know? How am I supposed to know? I Richard? think I did, Bill. Oh, you did. Okay. So my I favorite. You also then request me to forward them again. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> so my favorite and the last one we'll read is from um, Craig up in Annandale, who has written in before. And typically he writes directly to me, telling me what a great job I do and, you know, glorifying me. And I, I always tend not to try to read these to make you feel bad, Connor, because as you say, I mean, you are the you driving get enough fan follow up. Yeah. Well, you, you're, the, you're the driving force behind the show. You know, you're the one who makes this show happen. I, I just happen to come on here and talk and, you know, say stupid things and, and, and whatnot. So but and and get credit for it so um steal the craig, show steal the show which i don't like to do so <laughs> craig, craig craig actually sent this to you and did not even include me on it it says hi connor and the other guy so i think that was a pointed <laughs> reference to me maybe getting too big for my for my my shoe like uh, what's what's the saying like maybe my head Bridges. swelling too big for my oh, britches yeah. yeah well that yeah. sounds which something I never, that, yeah yeah it's probably something burt lancaster know. said in the james thorpe's movie <laughs> jim thorpe movie it's one of those and it one, made sense back then it, yeah. people were like oh yeah the britches that was another thing not to get off on another tangent quickly so, so I'll, I'll, let me read this first uh hi connor and the other guy really enjoy in your interviews the last couple the last couple i've listened to are very insightful great work you have a real knack for connecting with your guests and by the way i did those pauses because craig from annandale doesn't believe in commas Craig, I love you. You know, I love you. So, <laughs> all right. All right. So maybe, maybe we should, oh, what, what were we talking about before that? 
I, a lot of t- different tangents. What was the t- last tangent I was going to go? Well, off on? bridges. Something. Well, bridges. bridges. So, so um, thinking about uh, sayings like that. So, someone, um, I was talking to someone on the phone, and they used the term "This isn't my first rodeo," right? Which everyone's heard. Everyone's heard. Everyone's heard. So, where did that come from? And like, why do people use that? Like, so even like, like in the Northeast, where there's not like a rodeo within a thousand miles from here. Like, where does that term come from? You have any idea? I mean, I could Google it and it would probably give me some more information, but yeah, no, so, I, I don't so, know the Genesis story of that. Okay. So I know this is a little out of left you, field. No, do I don't. You know I, no, okay. I don't. I don't. And I'm going to look it up. I probably should have before this thing, but wouldn't it be great if like people instead said, this isn't my first squash match. Like wouldn't squash be like bigger because of just that. Um, so could we start that, Connor? I, I think you, I think you could start saying this isn't my first podcast. I think I, no, uh, <laughs> would people believe that though? <laughs> I feel like it's my first one. Everyone we do. I don't know. Like they, they, what if they saw you play and they were like, "This looks like your first squash match." Well, that's like, what I'm. No, no, I'm not saying. I'm not saying I'm gonna. I'm not gonna say while I'm playing squash. Like anytime anybody says like, "Hey, yeah, why? Well, yeah, that was really smart of you to do that." I'll say, "Well, it's not my first squash match." And really get so that gonna, and get that started. Yeah. <laughs> why, why don't let's let's see how that movement goes, and we can encourage uh, any squash radio fans out there to or TBD fans uh, to, to do it. Yeah, so, so if if any other fans want to reach out, what should they do, Bill? Uh, squashradio at gmail dot com. Um, and uh, you know if 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 you've uh, if you've emailed before, um, email again. Uh, we accept uh, accept Ricky, uh, Ricky, Ricky. Hold off on this episode, would you? You're banned. <laughs> Ricky, anytime. All right. I'll make sure to get you out. <laughs> All right. Good night, Kayla. Kaylee. <laughs>